Hi. Uh, Hi. Coming up, subversity is uh, coming up is subversity here on KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the Regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, today, we're going to have uh, a focus on uh, a new film that's going to be airing on PBS in a week um, next Monday, and uh, it's a film, a tragic uh, coverage, a tragic story actually, of uh, U.S. military moral lapses in the Vietnam War. And with us is the director of that film, uh, called Mi Lai. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is Barack uh, Goodman, um, who directed, wrote, and produced um, Mi Lai. Um, why did you uh, do this film? Well, I was uh, uh, approached by the executive producer of American Experience, the show on PBS, to do this film. I, and I think that uh, the reason that he wanted to do it was that he felt it was very timely. I mean, we're, again, in wars and places we only kind of dimly understand and fighting an insurgent kind of um, army. And uh, things like the My Lai Massacre are probably happening right now as we speak. And I think he felt and I feel that it's instructive to go back and look at what happened in this story to understand the pressures that soldiers can be under and how they can snap. And um, and I think it you know it speaks very much to what's going on today. Um, for sure. Uh, it is, was it hard to dig up the footage uh, that you have and to do the interviews? It was. I mean, <clears throat> about two-thirds of the soldiers that we interviewed in the film uh, they all are members of Charlie Company, which perpetrated the massacre. About two-thirds of them had never spoken before about this. And uh, we had to, there was a process of wooing them and making them feel secure enough to come forward. And I think ultimately they were glad they did. A lot of them had wanted to talk about it and had been keeping it in for all these years, 40 years now. So once we got past that initial defensiveness, I think they um, they were grateful and glad to have a chance to talk about it. I think they've been you know, thoroughly misunderstood for all this time. As far as the footage goes, much of the footage is original footage shot by soldiers themselves. Uh -huh. And, um, yeah, we have a lot of uh, photographs and footage shot by members of Charlie Company. These guys apparently went around with cameras. Uh, they, they all had little Instamatic cameras. One of them had a Super 8 movie camera. Wow. So, you know, we, we were able to tap into that, and it gives, I think, gives the film an immediacy and a, and a kind of feeling of, of truthfulness that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Maybe you could uh, give some background on what actually happened there, because sure. I'm not sure all the listeners know what really happened. Sure, sure. Well, it was it was uh, 1968. It was March of 1968, and uh, the war had um, begun to become very nasty. And uh, this company of 140 soldiers were detailed to a part of Vietnam, the central plain of Vietnam, which was uh, a place where most of the action happened in the form of booby traps, mines, and snipers. The soldiers never really saw their enemy, but they were losing lots and lots of soldiers from this company through these kinds of means, the booby traps, the mines, and it really began to play havoc on their psychology. Um, and they really began to turn their anger and frustration against the vi local villagers who they suspected of being sympathizers or collaborators with the Viet Cong. And gradually this, this got worse and worse, and there was very little 
kind of oversight of them by their commanding officer um, who, if he didn't encourage this behavior, at least looked the other way. So it got around to mid-March, and they were finally told in a briefing that the next day they would be going into a village and they would finally be able to confront the enemy. They would see their enemy finally, and they would be able to engage in a real firefight. And, of course, this was welcome news for them. They, they wanted uh, revenge for what had happened. Well, it turns out that intelligence was completely wrong, and there was no enemy soldiers in this village. There were only about 500 men, women, and you know, elderly men, women, and children. So they went into this village of Milai that day, you know, rearing for, for vengeance and opened fire on these innocent people. And something happened. Uh, there's some kind of group think or some kind of um, something took hold of these men and they went they went beyond just that initial misunderstanding of who was there. They they started to round up these people and several of them, led by Lieutenant Callie actually lined them up on a, uh, at a ditch site and, and mowed them down um, with machine guns. Uh, more than 500 people were killed. And that's the basic story. Uh, it doesn't get to the complexity of what happened, but it's the basic outline of what happened. And these were included babies, uh, mothers? Babies. Babies yeah. in their mother's arms. Yeah. Um, we, we talked to a number of survivors in the film, and they all described the sheer horror of what happened. It was very much like what you'd see of the Nazis, you know, uh, and the Jews. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a real mystery as to what happened, which is what really attracted me to this story and to this film, is, is what could have happened? Were these guys just all criminals, all insane? What, what, what took place here? And that really becomes the mystery that drives the film. Did you um, spend a, many years trying to get this together then? It took about a year from start to finish. Oh. And uh, in that year, interestingly enough, Lieutenant Callie, who had been um, silent for you know all 40 years, finally broke his silence. He, he still wouldn't go on camera with us or, or talk to any media people, but he did uh, appear at a, a local Kiwanis Club event and finally apologized for his behavior, which he had never done in, in 40 years since this uh, took place. And so he, he said he was sorry, right? He said he was sorry. He said he regretted what had happened. He... he uh, a, a good part of the film is devoted to the cover-up after um, Milai and to the gradual revelations of what happened and to the trial of Lieutenant Callie. He was the only soldier in Charlie Company uh, convicted of any crimes, but he was basically let off by President Nixon, who intervened in the in the case. And uh, and ever since then, he kind of went underground and never spoke publicly until you know just a few months ago. He. Um he only served, what, four months? About four months, yes, in, in the brig. Uh, he was convicted. He was sentenced to life in, in prison. But uh, uh, Nixon intervened, and, and uh, he was let go. Did Nixon pardon him? He didn't pardon him, but he, uh, he it, it's a very complicated story. But essentially, uh, through the appeals process, uh, Nixon first ordered that he not be held during his appeal and then kind of signaled his intention to eventually pardon him, which I think led the military itself to, to exonerate him. And, and because Nixon had done this, no other soldiers, you know, there was no appetite to try any of the other culpable people. So they all got off. There was really no one punished for this uh, event. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it is. The... Um how did Lieutenant Callie, William Callie, become such a kind of folk hero to the conservative movement? 
Well, you know, that's what's really interesting is that he was a folk hero. Not only what happened is that after he was convicted, there was a huge public outcry against his conviction. And it wasn't just conservatives who you could expect to feel that he was being blamed for something he shouldn't have been blamed for. Uh, it was also liberals who felt that he was a scapegoat for the war, that we were pointing a finger at this one man when the entire war was, a, you know, a crime. And why should we be punishing one guy when, when you know, the entire senior command of the U.S. Army should be in jail? Oh. So both sides of the political spectrum united in this public outcry, and, and that's really what propelled Nixon to intervene, you know, because he was such a political animal. He took advantage of this and, and, and you know, did the popular thing. We have in the film uh, the prosecutor in the Cali case, who is really sort of the moral center of the film, who basically says that, in, in, you know, in, in this country, even in war, there have to be limits. There have to be. There has to be a moment when you say you can't kill anymore. These are innocent people. You have to restrain yourselves. And, and Nixon um, just completely undermined that uh, that principle. Did um, but I mean I don't understand why liberals would support him. Um, support it, I mean would oppose his conviction because it, it, it was a feeling that. Hmm. By convicting only Callie, by pointing a finger at Callie, we were scapegoating him, and we were we were letting ourselves off, you know, for the entire crime of the war by by um, imprisoning one guy. So it was essentially saying, you know, f that we're not uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to we're not going to we're not going to sit by and let you wash your hands clean because you've, you know, convicted this one guy. We're going to protest that. And so they came together with conservatives in this kind of public uh, uprising. But it was a very strange marriage of very strange bedfellows in this case. Did, uh, I mean, did anybody, uh, did the Vietnam government do anything uh, at the time? There was nothing much they could do at the yeah. time. But, they, but I'll tell you, I, I went to Vietnam in the course of making this film, and it is still, you know, a, a hugely important uh, collective memory and symbol for the Vietnamese people. They, they've reconstructed the village of My Lai, and they've created a, a beautiful museum and sanctuary there for uh, to commemorate the dead. And they still view it as being a kind of, you know, important pivotal moment in in in, the, in their version of the story of the Vietnamese War, and and so they were they were very welcoming to us and very helpful to us in, in getting the story told. Was well, so, so there were some survivors that you were you did interview in this yes story. there were there were uh, more than a hundred survivors, some of whom have died of natural causes since then. So there was there's a handful of people there. Um, many of them were children at the time, but they, they all, of course, have vivid, vivid memories of what happened, and we were able to interview them. And I couldn't, I really I, I could not believe my ears when I heard their stories. I just could not believe that this had taken place the way they described it. And But, you know, they all say this, describe it very, very much the same way, and the soldiers corroborate it to, to the letter. So there's no question of the veracity of what they were saying. And... Um, yeah, it was just it was a remarkably moving um, uh, experience to talk to them. Yeah, I think it does move you to tears to hear what happened. It it, it really does, and 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 the soldiers themselves, you know, that that's even perhaps even more moving to talk to them because they're so full of conflicted feelings and remorse, and some of them actually to this day, I think because they have to, they 
deny any wrongdoing. They feel like what they did was to follow orders, and they they did what a soldier should do, and they sort of exonerate themselves. But they're they're all sort of broken people. Um, I yeah. think every single one we interviewed has had drug and alcohol problems and PTSD and all sorts of problems. So it's it's it was quite an experience to get to know them and, and talk to them. Yeah, one soldier you interviewed, I remember, uh, had nightmares. He he said he thought drink. A drink would solve the problem, but even after drinking, he would still have these nightmares. They all they all had ver- versions of that. They all have you know recurring nightmares of what happened, and you know it wasn't just that day. They'd experienced, as I said, months of, of of slow attrition of their buddies and their friends, and you know casualties and in 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 terrible um, ways, and they, they'd been scalded before this happened. So. You know, and, and and like a lot of Vietnam veterans, they've been trying to put their lives back together ever since. And uh, what I was surprised by in doing this film was how much I would come to sympathize with them and mm. and to, you know, really kind of get closer to understanding how this could have happened to ordinary guys. These were all ordinary men, just like us. I mean, there was nothing different about them. They were pretty young. At the they time. were very young. That's important point they were they were 19 20 years old mm. that played a part but but um but i think the circumstances they found themselves in you know really played the most part and and you begin to ask yourself what would you have done if you'd been there would this have happened could you have been a part of this and you know that's when it starts to get really chilling i think i would have shot Kelly. <laughs> that's <laughs> it's harder said than done i mean you're you're in the middle of a of a battle you've been given an order he's he's your, your superior officer and um, and it's it's difficult to know what you would do in that situation. It's it's not an easy situation to be in. Yeah, some of the people you interviewed said they walked away, uh, and they ex- fully expected to be shot for walking away. Exactly. There were there were definitely many members of Charlie Company who refused to participate in the worst of it. Although uh, they did not intervene. There was one great hero in the story who was uh, a prominent character in the story, a helicopter pilot who. Did intervene. He landed his helicopter between the approaching U.S. soldiers and the civilians, and had his door gunner train his machine gun on the approaching soldiers so he could evacuate the civilians. He's perhaps the one great hero of the story. Thompson, right? Hugh Thompson, correct? Yes, yeah. And you uh, interviewed the uh, prosecutor who caused that. Yeah. Uh, that he got. He was really relieved to actually hear that somebody did do the yeah. right thing. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that. Those who investigated the story afterward were, were looking for some some shred of humanity in the story, and to have encountered this guy, who you know, who who listened to a higher authority than than, than his immediate superior officers, um, yeah, that was very refreshing to them to find him. I understand he went back to Vietnam and was welcomed there. He was indeed. Uh, there's a wonderful story that we tell in the film. The the, um, the helicopter pilot and his door gunner. Uh, the, the pilot, Hugh Thompson, is dead now, but his door gunner is very much alive, and he tells the story of going back to the ditch site where the uh, executions took place and looking for survivors, and they find one little kid, and they pull the kid out and take him to an orphanage, a hospital. Uh, that kid is now, of course, a grown man, and we, we went back and found him, mm. but they had also gone back and found him and had a reunion with him, and uh, so it was. It's, it's remarkable that he's now a father himself and remembers vividly everything that happened to him. And so we have both sides of the story in the film. We have his version of 
being in the ditch and seeing the soldiers approach. And, of course, we have the soldiers describing how they pulled this, this boy out and took him to an orphanage. How old was he that, when he, he was, was put out? They thought at the time he was three or four years old. Turns out he was just a small kid. He was eight years old. Oh, he looks young, yeah. He looked young, yeah, he looked young. But he, he uh, you know, he, he has such detailed memories that there's no, there's no chance it's not him because he, he remembers exactly hmm. the details that they remember and they, 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 they lined up their stories together and there was no question it was the same guy, same kid. Yeah, and I remember in the film Tom, Thompson was, was telling the orphanage people that he has no parents. Right. They took him immediately to a hospital in a local, vill- a local city and, and, and dropped him off and said, you're going to have to keep him because there's no question his, his family is dead. And that was a situation for many, many of the, well, of the few survivors there. Most of them were orphans at this point and, and have had very, very tough lives since then, uh, although the Vietnamese government has tried to take care of them as best they can. Well, why did the... Um the officers, you know, the people in charge above Cali, why did they not report this or go well, up the chain of command? I mean, clearly they, they were worried about their own careers. Um, at this point in, in the Vietnam War, killing of civilians was a huge issue in the, in the U.S. Uh, war protesters were, were um, using the, the, the fact of the, of the killing of civilians as a main reason that we should get out of Vietnam. So this, the careers of these officers were very much at risk if this was reported and divulged, not to mention the fact that they had ordered their, their company to, to go in and do this in, in, in one way or another. Of course, they didn't expect there to be civilians in this village, but the fact is they had given an order that was based on faulty intelligence and would definitely have had some kind of repercussions. So they thought that they could simply cover it up. And the question is, how many of these kinds of things happen in Vietnam that we don't know about, we'll never know about? I don't think it happened at the, on this, at this level, but certainly uh, there were, must have been many, many instances of, of killing of civilians that we don't know about in Vietnam. Did you see the order then? Did you see the specific order? That the order was a verbal order, but we have mm. we have testimony from many people, um, both at the time and, and in the film, about what the captain said to them. And there's very little grayness in in that um, in in those accounts. I mean, there's there's some dispute about exactly what he said, but there's a consensus that he said. You're, you're to go into this village tomorrow and kill everything that moves. Animals, you burn the houses down, kill anything you see. And, and, and when someone asked him, what about civilians? He said, there will be no civilians. This is, the, what you will, the people you will see are Viet Cong or Viet Cong sympathizers and they are fair game for you, for you to kill. So the, the soldiers at least initially went in with that mindset that they were going to you know, completely annihilate everything in this village. The question then is, at what point, as a soldier, do you stop and say to yourselves, wait a minute, these are women and children. They're not Viet Cong. Uh, why, how is an infant a threat to me? At that point, you, you would hope that there some kind of morality would stop them, but it didn't in this case. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you do uh, talk about the, the, the journalist, the aspiring journalist you called, right. Ron Rudnow. Correct. Who, yeah. uh, who uh, talked to this? Uh, to uh, talk about this to Seymour Hirsch, right? Uh, who ended up writing for uh, for alternative uh, newsletter. About well, th- this. this is how the story ultimately came out. What what happened was um, this guy was a soldier uh, in Vietnam, and 
and had known many of the uh, soldiers of Charlie Company. Uh, he, he, he was friends with them from a previous uh, posting. And um, a couple of the, one of them told him the story of what had happened in this place, and he was shocked. And he made it his a point to go around to the other guys in Charlie Company that he knew. They were scattered all over Vietnam by this point, but he went around, he talked to them, he found lots of corroboration for what he was hearing. And once he was discharged, he went back to the United States. This is now a year after My Lai happened. And he wrote a letter to um, some very prominent senators and congressmen and to the Pentagon itself. And um, at the same time, uh, it's a tangled story, but at the same time, Seymour Hirsch was working on this story and found Ridenauer, and they talked, and he told him the story that he had he had, he had heard. And together, they sort of both um, brought this to light, and uh, it became a huge story in the United States. You didn't, you didn't want to include Cy Hirsch in this? We invited no. Cy Hirsch to participate, and he, he declined. I, I don't know why. I can't really speculate why, but he chose oh. not to appear. Oh. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. The um, do you think that the, I mean, what happened after the story broke? Then did the, the the Pentagon I- immediately uh, order an investigation? I have to say they did. Actually, the the army had already begun um, its investigation before the story broke publicly. The, the initial letters that Ridnour wrote were private, and he chose not to make it public on purpose. But they did. Those letters did begin an internal investigation, so they, they they already had a handle on what was going on. What really broke the story nationally was the decision by the photographer um, who took pictures of this um, massacre to sell those pictures to a newspaper in Cleveland, Ohio, and then again to Life magazine. And that's when the story went from something that was bubbling along quietly to something that was huge and explosive. Um, so, you know, the Army at that point had already begun its investigation, and, and I have to say the Army took it very seriously. They appointed a very honorable and, uh, and thorough and decent guy to do this investigation, and he did an extremely thorough job. In fact, one of the things we have in the film are his original tape-recorded interviews with the soldiers, which have been, you know, secret for 40 years, but we were uh, able to... Um, to, make, to get them public, and and he's um, and we hear the voices of the soldiers talking to him, describing what happened as he interrogates them. It's fascinating. This was the Pierce Commission. The Pierce Commission, correct. Yeah. And was this a reel-to-reel tape? It was reel-to-reel tape. It was transferred by the National Archives for us to um, to wow. DVD. But it's um, it's very pristine. You know, it's been sitting around the archives. There was a hmm. a British journalist who a couple of years ago, a woman named Celine Dunlop, who found these. Uh, she was able to get a certain number of them transcribed, you know, transferred, but most of them remained, you know, sitting on a shelf, and we got many of the rest of them transferred. And so we're hearing people from the dead almost, you know, talking about this stuff from 40 years ago um, when it was very, very fresh for them, and it was, you know, raw, and, and, and you know, it just happened. So it's it's really intriguing to hear their voices and hear how he pulls information out of them slowly. Um, yeah, he, he was trying to find out who was lying, and the the guy that uh, Thompson uh, reported to, he denied hearing anything about the yes, massacre. I mean, that's, that's one of the most interesting exchanges, because um, Thompson 
Thompson did report this immediately on the same day it happened. He reported it to the head of the brigade, the brigade commander, a man named Warren Henderson. And Henderson took us, completely ignored him and covered it up. And Pierce knew that Thompson had done this because Thompson had told him in these tape-recorded interviews. So then he brings Tom, uh, Orrin Henderson in for an interrogation and, and, and says to him, did anyone tell you of this? Did anyone describe what had happened? And Henderson's just blanket denies that. He said, no one told me. And, and at that moment, Pierce knew he was lying. And he was furious. He was just, as a military man, he was just outraged that this, you know, brigadier commander could just out and out lie to him like this. He didn't even say, I don't recall. Exactly. He said, <laughs> he nobody said no. told me. And, yeah. and he got off scot-free. I mean, he was one of the people that walked from, uh, from this whole thing unscathed. Was, so nobody lost their job because of this? There was some disciplinary actions within the military. There was uh, um, These guys certainly didn't uh, advance in their careers, but in terms of actual criminal penalties, hmm. there was nothing, nothing at all, except for a four-month stint for uh, Cali. You know, in the film you talk about why uh, Cali had to be the first person to be tried hmm. because he was about to leave the, uh, retire from the military. Right. And um, why couldn't he have been also tried under... Uh, criminal statutes it's very peculiar i had the same question but apparently if you're in the military and you're doing something in the course of your military duty not not something as you know during your civilian you know time you're you're there's no jurisdiction to prosecute you by a civilian court it has to be done inside you know court-martial inside the military and similarly once you're out of the military the military itself can't reach you so there's this weird um moment where whatever you did as a soldier if you're if you're if you leave the military you you're you're not subject to penalty so many of the guys had already kind of left finished their tours of duty and left and those guys couldn't have been prosecuted even if they wanted to um Callie had a few i think a week or two left or maybe a month before um he was going to get out so they had to rapidly develop his case and get it to trial before he was uh out of the uh, out of the military. I have to take a little break here. Uh, you can just stay on. Uh, we're in the beginning of our pledge drive this week. Uh, it's going to go on for two weeks. We're trying to raise fifteen thousand bucks to help uh, continue the station uh, to put on shows like this one, uh, where you can hear uh, people who have done important work. Uh, you can go to the KUCI website, KUCI.org, where there's a banner you can click on for the KUCI fund drive, or you can call. Nine four nine eight two four five eight two four. Thank you. Uh, you're listening to Subversity here on KUCI with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. And we've been talking with uh, Director Barack Goodman, who's uh, done this new documentary on My Lai, the largest massacre in the Vietnam War. And do you think this massacre led to... Um, slowly led to the um, pull-out of American troops from Vietnam and uh, or the resignation of Johnson, uh, LBJ? I think it was a tremendous... It didn't lead to the resignation of LBJ because it happened after that, but it, but I do think it was a tremendously important moment and in, in helped to turn public opinion decisively against the war. As someone in the film says, up until that point, there had been a lot of anti-war sentiment in the United States, but it was always about what we were doing to the Vietnamese people, uh, what we were doing to them. And at, 
when Milai happened, it started to be about what the war was doing to us, how it was corroding our values as a country, how it was undermining you know, the, the very things we were supposed to be fighting for. And when that happened, mm. it went beyond campuses and places like Berkeley and started to be mothers and ordinary middle-class, middle-of-the-road Americans who started to lose uh, patience with the war. And that's when I think the momentum for the war really began to shift and we really started to, as a country, uh, turn against it. So I think Milai was probably the most important moment in that development. It probably happened before he quit, right? I mean, LBJ quit in 68, but he, but the news didn't come out. The revelation of it didn't come yeah, out until yeah. after, correct. So I, I don't think he, he probably was even aware of it uh, when he decided not to run. But, um, but yes, your point is taken. He's, he, he, it had happened. It just hadn't been uh, publicly revealed. Yeah, I was just in Austin last week. Uh, actually, last Sunday, I was, uh, Sunday a week ago, I was at the LBJ library. And, of course, they didn't, uh, there, there's some prom- prominence to Vietnam War uh, panels. I mean, uh, a panels of uh, pictures from Vietnam War, like the Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. But the greater focus was on the Great Society. Right. Um, but uh, I remember as a, as a Vietnam War protester in those days, um, one of the chants was, LBJ, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Right. And so the, there was this, uh, like you were saying, uh, concern among the protesters that, that kids were being killed. Yes. Yes. Yes, no, the, 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 there was already a robust, you know, anti-war movement going on. In fact, that's part, one of the reasons this was covered up. As I said earlier, it was it was a feeling like if this ever got out, it would inflame that anti-war protest so much. So they, you know, the, the people involved wanted to keep it quiet. But um, but it was that feeling of, of what it, what is what is happening here to our own people, to our own soldiers, that they could have done this, that they could have stooped this low, that this could have happened there must be some poison that's been that's been you know injected into the US military and and that's when you know people said this has got to be stopped this is an immoral uh a war it's just it's 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 just not worth it anymore did you see do you see then parallels with uh, Abu Ghraib and the torture scenes uh, i do see a lot of parallels with Abu Ghraib and and with many other haditha and many other in, mm. uh, incidents in both iraq and probably going on in afghanistan as well uh you know you put young men uh, and young women in the case of Abu Ghraib in these situations you don't support them you have told them and instructed them and taught them that these that their enemy are are subhuman are not really human beings and and then you're surprised when something like that happens. Uh, I think I think it's a mistake to think it won't happen. Uh, and I think the U.S. military is more sensitive than they were probably in the Vietnam War, but still probably isn't sensitive enough to the possibility of these kinds of massacres happening and these kinds of events like like Abu Ghraib. Um, you know, soldiers. It's very it's very challenging for the U.S. Army to both instruct soldiers to kill the enemy and 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 to gin them up with enough anger to do it, and then also to tell them, "But you've got to stop at a certain point." That's that's a very tough thing to pull off. Yeah, in this in the movie, you uh, in the film, you point out that um, the lawyers or the higher ups keep saying that uh, the soldiers should resist uh, an illegal order. But the, yeah. the, the the troops think that's ridiculous. Yes, I mean, and and you can understand their point. I mean, what this what the soldiers say in the film is, you know, 
we were supposed to we were supposed to disobey an order. Come on, that's ridiculous. In, in the U.S. Army, you're shot for disobeying an order. It's not a it was not a possibility for us to disobey an order. So we're, we're 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 in the field. We're not there weighing the legality or illegality of an order we're given. We're there to follow the order. It's a very compelling argument. It's hard to dispute that. Um, on the other hand, as as someone in the film says, there have to be limits in war. You can't uh, blindly, uh, uh, you know, go beyond what what is sort of a reasonable standard for your behavior. You can't simply act as a robot. You have to bring some common sense, some 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 you know rationality to what you're doing. But it, it's it's a very difficult gray. Uh, issue and what it's one of the reasons I think the film is is interesting is because it's not it's not an easy situation where you could look at it and say I would never have done that it's obvious they were wrong quite the contrary it's it's you, know, you don't know what you would have done in that situation and it's very very difficult to see where the blame lies and who's right and who's wrong it's it's not black and white but did you get any evidence that the soldiers before this incident were uh, trained to demean um, Vietnamese uh, yes. villagers. Absolutely. It's not so much that they were trained to, I think, is that it happened naturally, and there was no effort to stop it or to put limits on it. We have lots of testimony from the soldiers about um, how they would, uh, you know, sexually abuse the girls and women in these villages, how they would beat, you know, and, 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 and intimidate, the young, the young men and old men, and and nobody, no higher ups ever said you can't do that to them. In fact, if they weren't, if it wasn't encouraged um, explicitly, I think it was it was condoned, you know, by 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 inference. And so, you know, when that happens, as somebody in the film says, you're on the road to hell. I mean, that's what that's a melee is going to take place if there's not discipline instilled at that moment when that stuff begins to happen. These soldiers were full of frustration and anger. They were full of, 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 of pain and a desire to lash back. And the only people they, they could find to lash back at were civilians. And, and at that point, you know, if you don't have a strong commanding officer stopping it, anything goes in that kind of a situation, I think. This, um, this Charlie company did not um, go on patrols with South Vietnamese Army then? There were there were some South Vietnamese um, translators, for example, uh, and what I'm told is that they were even worse. Some of the South Vietnamese uh, uh, soldiers were even more cruel and even more, um, uh, you know, out of control. So it's not like they would have been been any kind of, you know, block or obstacle to what happened at Milan. Uh, I was just in Austin, like I said, and uh, met one of the an author there in the book exhibit area, and he wrote a book about uh, McCain using the word "gook," mm-hmm. and oh. he traced it back. McCain, of course, was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, and he called his um, captors uh, this derogatory term. And um, this author, Erwin Tang, uh, wrote a book about this and traced it back to the Philippines when the U.S. Uh, there was a uh, a military guy who actually ordered uh, anybody uh, from five years old to be shot and killed mm-hmm. and called them uh, this term. And yes. so there's this kind of uh, you know, lineage from Definitely. earlier massacres. Definitely. And, and, and I think that that term and many others were, were, were used 
you know, by all of the guys extensively, and it it helps to corrode the humanity of, of the other side or of the or of the neutral civilians in in this country. And you know, um, it, it was sort of a, a almost a kind of bonding com- camaraderie kind of thing mm-hmm. to, to to sort of use this kind of terminology, but but um, but it had this effect of of, of of making these people less than human in their eyes, and yes, it, it was not just Vietnam. It was it was all the wars in Southeast Asia, and probably all the wars we've ever fought. <laughs> Where it's almost a yeah. psychological way of arming yourself to kill is to is to stop thinking of your enemy as, as human. Did they say they had a hard time distinguishing between uh, Vietnamese that were on their side and Vietnamese that were against them? Uh, that way, Viet Cong. Well, that's a hugely important part of this, and, and and the soldiers themselves point that out constantly. There was no way of knowing who your enemy was, and you hear this over and over again. During the day, they would wave at you and bring you water, and then at night, they would ambush you with 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 uh, hand grenades and and so on. And and even the children uh, were known to you know bring. Uh, Put uh, hand grenades into the gas tanks of, uh, of U.S. soldiers' uh, jeeps and so on. So they felt the soldiers felt that everyone they saw was a potential enemy, and nobody could be trusted. Nobody could, you know, as someone said in the film, there was no scorecard or no map saying this village over here is friendly and this one isn't, uh, and you didn't know who to trust. And so you know that helped prepare the ground as well for Milai because. Uh, they could, in some w- weird way, rationalize killing all these people by by assuming that they were enemy. There was also a lot of sexual abuse. Huh? You mentioned yeah. actually uh, in the in the film. You mentioned a soldier uh, forcing a woman to perform oral sex and then uh, killing her, right? And, yeah, uh, killing her and cutting and cutting, cutting off her, her, her braid off. off. Yeah, and and attaching it to his own helmet as a trophy yeah, in a way. As a trophy, and and this was very widespread. In fact. We didn't include because we can't. It's public television, but some of the most horrific and graphic mm. uh, abuse during the day was sexual in nature and, and was really hard to imagine and hard to believe. And um, were these mostly the younger guys doing it or the older? It wasn't. I don't think it really broke down on age. Mm. I think some of the worst of that kind of abuse was perpetrated by guys who were very borderline to begin with. I mean, some of the you know the, like. Like America, this this company was a cross section of people. It was yeah. people from all walks of life, but there was a certain group of them in there that were really bad seeds and were guys who really were looking for an excuse to fire a gun. And those guys did some of the worst kinds of um, real atrocities this day. But it's too easy just to point to them because really, um, almost you know a, a vast majority, I would say, of, of Charlie Company soldiers participated in one way or another in this massacre. Um, it was only a, a very few of them who really didn't refuse to shoot at all during this day. Can you make a distinction between people that, were there anybody that, was there anybody that went to West Point or kind of were trained as officers versus no. uh, uh, draftees or, or, or volunteers or, what, or whatever you want to these call were, These were, these were all basically draftees. And mm. the, one of the, one of the, background elements of the story is that the, the, at this point in the in the Vietnam War the, the they were they were reaching down pretty far to get soldiers they they had to uh 
there was a huge demand for bodies going over there. Yeah, and yeah. Lieutenant Kelly, for example, who was a lieutenant, it was an officer, was a very borderline guy. He was he was as someone says in the film, he was he was below average in almost every way. He was he was shorter. He was only five foot four inches tall. He <laughs> was less well educated. He, he barely had you know, kind of graduated junior college. He, he he flunked out. He did poorly in officer officer candidate school. He was he was disliked by his men. He was a very borderline guy. But they needed officers, and so he found himself leading men. and uh, And this is what sort of happens when 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 you you know you relax your standards this much. So the leaders actually should be blamed in a way, right? Because I think so, and I, I do. I think I think um, there was there was no accountability. There was no, uh, you know, the captain, Captain Medina, who gave the order and who was really responsible for this unit, um, was never brought to uh, to justice, and nor were his superiors, who who also were sort of behind the uh, the whole thing. So what's the rank of, I mean, um, comparing Medina with Cali, who was over who? Captain Medina was in charge of Charlie Company. Oh, there were three yeah. lieutenants, each of them in charge of a platoon, and yeah, okay. the first platoon is Cali's, which did most of the damage. Did um, did they keep diaries themselves afterwards? Did they write down all this stuff? Or did you find there was any? one diary uh, yeah. kept by one of the guys we, we interviewed, and we didn't get it in the film, but it's, it's a remarkable document. Uh, he was very you know, reluctant to show it to us, but the the uh, matter-of-fact tone in which he describes this day, mm. um, he talks about how um, the bodies looked like they were made of rubber. They had just, you know, shot them up so much they were bent in so many odd ways, and that kind of cold, calculating kind of description, emotionless, really spoke a lot to, um, to the state of mind of these guys. Um, and of course, we have these photographs. I mean, it was remarkable. There was an army f- photographer along during this day who was meant to take pictures of a great U.S. triumph, <laughs> uh, and he found himself instead taking pictures of this massacre. And uh, so it's all chronicled with actual photographs, which is, you know, one of the reasons it burst on, on into the news the way it did. Are those photographs in the National Archives? Or, or They're actually not in the National Archives. They're, they're still privately owned by... The, he sold them to um, Corbis, the big uh, photo uh, um, archive, yeah. archive. But they're very famous, and, and, and they're very, very upsetting and chilling. And we were, you know, used them judiciously, but we used them quite a bit in the film. Did you... Were there some images that were too horrific you didn't want to yeah. show? Yeah, we, we, we did. There were half a dozen images we really couldn't couldn't use because and not only that the, the photographer told us that he had destroyed a number of photographs himself of the actual soldiers shooting you know in the in the in the process in the moment of, of shooting uh, civilians because he feared at the time that these would be used you know in, in courts of law which of course they would have been used yeah, yeah. and he destroyed them uh, years ago so you know you can imagine if those had existed what they would have shown because I've seen uh, images of the Vietnam War where uh, Vietnamese were just cut up and yeah. you know hung, you know dragged around with their bodies, kind of. Yes, and, and it needs to be said that the the other side did it to to. I mean, the North the North was equally, if not more, brutal. Um, we think of Way the Way massacre and things like that, where the North Vietnamese perpetrated horrific acts against against 
South Vietnamese civilians and uh, and even U.S. soldiers at times. So it, it went both ways, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. It doesn't exonerate uh, what happened here. Did you um, did you get a feeling that I mean, how did you feel about doing this film? I was worried at first, not necessarily because of the subject matter, but because as a filmmaker, I didn't really want to do a film that was a finger-pointing film or a film that was just too kind of obvious. And to my great relief, it was immediately clear to me that it was not obvious at all, that it was a tremendously complicated and deep story with a lot of gray in it. And I found myself really sympathetic to the soldiers very quickly. I mean, just talking to them just a little bit, I could see how conflicted they were at the time and still are and how much pain they've suffered and how and how difficult a situation they were in. And that's when the film really opened up for me and became, you know, really one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had as a filmmaker. And, and uh, I'm really proud of this film in part, in large part because I think we preserve the, the complexity and grayness of it, and it's not, it's not, I think people who see it don't have an easy time, you know, choosing one side or the other, feeling, you know, strongly about one side or the other, it's, it's, they, they leave the theater, leave the television set still thinking and debating and, and yeah. talking about it, which is the best, the best outcome. Yeah, in the film, you actually uh, do uh, interview this soldier who is reading from a letter yeah. about some atrocity he witnessed. Yes. And he was writing back to his family saying, you know, he's just trying to wait for the days to, for his uh, tour to be over because yeah. he just couldn't handle this. Yeah. And, that, uh, was that his, um, was he the one doing, I mean, what, uh, was it somebody else doing this stuff or was he the one doing it? He saw somebody <laughs> doing it then. He uh, he he was a he was one of the men of conscience. I would say his name is yeah. Greg Olson. He's 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 a remarkable man, a remarkable, deep and an interesting guy. And and he you know he was a struggling young nineteen year old didn't know what to do with what he was seeing. And so uh, you know this is before Eli happened, but it's in this build up where lots of stuff is going on. There's lots of cruelty and going on, and he just doesn't know how to handle it. And he writes this incredibly moving letter back to his parents saying, I've lost my faith in man, in humanity, uh, because of what I witnessed. But but you could see his pain, he, you know, he, he's stuck. He's between a rock and a hard place. He's, he's still a 19-year-old private in the U.S. Army mm-hmm. with no ability really to stop this or even to call attention to it. You know, people were being fragged right and left in Vietnam if they if they were, you know, blowing whistles on each other. So it was, it was not an easy situation for anybody to be in. And, and that, that letter, I think, really, really captures the, um, the difficulty that these guys were in. By frag, you mean uh, grenades or something? Frag, yeah. yeah, means sort of being killed by your own guys. I mean, there's yeah. a great scene in the movie Platoon where, you know, right. one of the two guys is killed by his fellow soldier. That, that did happen. There was a fear of that. Maybe it was exaggerated, but there was certainly a fear of repercussions if you, if you, you know, ratted out your fellow soldiers. So it wasn't just fragging the, the, the people higher up? No. No, it was it was each other. It was, uh, oh. it was you know you had to and, and there was a strong bond between these guys. They thought of each other as family, as brothers, and only they could understand each other. So it was incredibly strong, uh, you know, resistance to breaking ranks and to to, to raising a, a ruckus about something or you know pointing out something that was going wrong. It was 
I'm not sure any of us would have been strong enough to do that. It was very, very difficult. Did any of these uh, GIs become um, anti-war activists? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think in this particular company that happened, uh, and I don't know the reasons for that. It may just be that they wanted to put it all behind them and try to live normal lives. Of course, that did happen widely in the war. I mean, yeah. John Kerry is a perfect example, Senator John Kerry, but there, there were many you know, veterans who became anti-war activists, but I don't think it happened within Charlie Company so much. Yeah, and Kerry himself uh, admitted... Uh Participating in some atrocity. Bob Kerry, yes. Bob Kerry. That's yeah, that so. Kerry. Senator Bob Kerry did, yeah. yeah, yeah. He did. Mm-hmm. And um, because I was thinking, um, um, I mean, there were this whole movement to publish GI underground newspapers mm-hmm. uh, in different bases, uh, but the, the, did the Charlie Company people talk about that at all? I didn't no. hear that from them, but what yeah. I did hear from them was how that they very quickly realized how futile the war is. It didn't take more than a few weeks for them to realize how pointless this entire thing was. They were they were they were going in circles, you know, capturing villages, leaving them only to have the Viet Cong recapture them. They would have to go back and fight again to capture them again. There was no point to the whole thing. And yeah. they knew that. All they knew that and they were just marking time till they could get out of there. You know, uh, after the um, after the the massacre they were sent out on patrol for 54 days right. and couldn't change their clothes, uh, couldn't go back. Uh, so do you think, did they feel that they were sent out to to be killed? Yes, they did. They, they strongly felt that. They strongly felt that they were being put out so that nobody would talk and that they would end up uh, dead. And, um, and, and I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't doubt it. I think it's probably exactly what happened. So this was because the the Harps were covering it up and yeah. didn't want them to be around. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you um, do you have any um, written evidence that that they, I mean, was did any of the Harps actually keep notes of what happened and then try to hide those or what? There was there were no contemporaneous notes of what happened, but there was very interestingly, there was a kind of sham investigation done by this this. Uh, brigade commander Orrin Henderson. He, he, according to regulations, if a war crime is reported to him, he was under an obligation to investigate it. Oh. And since Hugh Thompson, the helicopter pilot, had reported this the same day it happened, he went through this very kind of um, cursory, um, so you know, quote unquote, investigation in which he basically asked the men, "Did you just participate in a massacre?" And when none of them would say yes, they did, he he wrote a kind of Two paragraph thing saying, "Well, there was no matter, you know, nothing happened." And in fact, huh. they they reported false casualty figures, right, uh, yes. and there was there were pieces in the newspaper coming out the the, the next day in the New York Times Body there was count, a piece right? yeah. about what a great success this had been and how many Viet Cong they killed and how um, few civilians had been killed. It was very low, right? The hundred twenty, hundred twenty eight, you know. Viet Cong had been killed in this great operation and how successful it was and this was all just made up from whole cloth. So was it Medina that reported that? Medina was it's it's a little unclear as to as to how and who was responsible for the false casualty figures. I think it was certainly partly Medina and Henderson himself. The other thing that was shocking to me was that these these higher ups, these these uh you know, um guys up up the food chain were actually flying overhead in helicopters during the entire massacre and later claimed not to have known what was going on and that that just 
defies belief. I oh, mean, they saw it. They saw it. They were they were in overhead helicopters. The whole point of which was to monitor what was going on, and they claim not to have seen it. And it's just it's just not possible that they didn't see see something. I mean, it was there was nothing. There was no return fire that day. It was entirely one way. Uh, even if they didn't see what happened at the ditch, they knew they knew they, you know they knew what was going on from 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 hooch to hooch. They knew something was definitely wrong here, and uh, and and didn't say a thing. Makes you wonder about today uh, with Afghanistan and um, Iraq uh, people. Um, you know, the military can see. Uh, you know, mili- uh, computerized. Yeah, computer screens watching what's going on at these drones attack. You know, well, you may be people. familiar with this very recent case in which yeah, there the Reuters uh, yeah, journalists right. exactly, and it's all yeah. caught on tape, and uh, there it is. Yeah, so I mean, kind of these situations repeat themselves. It's they they really do, and, and that's why this is such a, a, a timely and important story to tell because it's. All the same conditions are, are exist in, in Afghanistan. It's almost exactly the same set of circumstances that led to Milai are, are, are in play again. And we have to we have to be very cautious as a country um, not to allow this to happen. It's, it's you know it would be disastrous if something like this took place in Afghanistan. Yeah, just a few days ago, I was reading this book I got um, that was remained it at uh, a bookstore, you know, selling for you know one third the price and. It was uh, a book on CIA uh, brainwashing and mind control experiments mm. in, um, in, in the past. Mm. And it included uh, several trips to Bianhua pro- uh, prison outside Saigon where they actually injected electrodes into uh, prisoners of war mm. and then s- tried to see their reaction, you know, probably gave them LSD and stuff. Mm. And then um, when they didn't react, they just went out and shot them and... Them all. Mm. So about 60 uh, Viet Cong, so-called Viet Cong, were used for experiments, you know. Mm. And so this is totally, you know, nobody knows about this. Yeah. I mean, I, if I didn't read this book, I would not have known about this. Yeah. And, no, uh, we're still turning up uh, new new facts about Vietnam and new, new things that went on, and it, it's stunning the degree to which, you know, this stuff happens in the dark. We don't know about it till 40 years later. Yeah, this was a book last year by Gordon Thomas, but secrets and lies: a history of mind of CIA mind control and oh, yeah. germ warfare. Yeah. So it's just amazing that these revelations revelations keep coming out. It is amazing. Um, so I mean, you know, d- does it give you any faith in humanity after doing this film? You know, it does. It does uh, it give me faith in humanity. There, there were heroes in this story. I mean, not only Hugh Thompson, the helicopter pilot, and his and his door gunner, who we interview, but. Uh, you know the, the the various prosecutors. There, there was an attempt to bring justice, and and it's very moving to hear the um, closing argument of the prosecutor in this case, Aubrey Daniel, who's in the film, in which he tells the jury, you know, you are the conscience of our nation. You you must you must uphold the deepest values of this country, which hold life sacrosanct. And this jury, which was a jury only of combat veterans from Vietnam. Six to nothing, they voted to convict Callie and to send him to jail for life. And so there was a conscience, there was humanity, there were people acting uh, in the right way. And but for this kind of political expediency by Nixon, there would have been, you know, real punishment in this case. So, you know, you, you, you grasp onto those kind of moments of real, um, of shining humanity, and you, and you try to understand the, the things that, 
that seem evil and try to bring a certain amount of empathy to them to, to see, you know, how this happened so it won't happen again. I, I don't understand what Nixon did because I know he, you know, presidents have the right to pardon, uh, but how did he, was he able to get him out of the stockade and just release him? He uh, he has the ability, commander in chief, to uh, to intervene very directly in in, in military proceedings. He oh. he didn't he didn't, but he signaled his willingness to, and that, I think that was all that was required in this case. There wasn't much appetite in the country or in the military to to go through long trials to try to prove the guilt of these people. It just there wasn't there wasn't enough appetite to do it, and. Uh, and I think it's at, in, in the context of the times, it was it's just easier to go with the flow and, and and kind of put it all behind us, and, and and you know not to not to not to not to revisit it over and over. So, so he he just got what what did he exactly do? Nixon himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he just got him released from. He got him released from the brig, and then uh, it, it's again it's a tangle. It would take another hour to go through all the steps, <laughs> but and I'm not sure I can even remember them, but. Yeah. Uh, you know, during the appeal process, uh, uh, this happened, and, and I think at that point, you know, the military itself decided that he had served uh-huh. enough time and basically, oh, I see. basically let him go. They didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't continue the prosecution. So um, he was. That's uh, probably an oversimplification, but that's essentially right. what took place. But well, it's the same thing with uh, you know the country now not trying to investigate, uh, you know, whether the what the U.S. did in torturing people. Exactly. Yeah, they don't want to go back and it's exactly relive it. Same thing. Exactly. And those people got away with a slap on the wrist too. Yeah, John Yoo, uh-huh. you know, he got away. Yeah, yeah. 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 And Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> for sure. You know, it goes up that high in the case of, of Abu Ghraib. Um, Although it, I think he can't go to Germany, I suppose, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's his one limitation, but yeah. <laughs> uh, not much of a of a punishment. Right. Wow. Well, thank you very much uh, thank you. for this exploration of this dark period of American history. Thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Well, good luck on the, f- on the film. Thank you. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. Uh, so uh, we've been talking with Barack Goodman, who's the director, writer, and producer of Me Lai, uh, this iconic moment in the Vietnam War, which um, showed the utter immorality of the war as practiced by um these um, soldiers, uh, these um, people like Lieutenant Kelly, um, who wiped out 507 civilians in this village in Quang Ngai province in Vietnam in 1968. And so this film will be shown on public broadcasting system next Monday evening. Uh, and... Uh, the DVD will be made available later. Uh, we are, you are listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're in the midst of a pledge drive. Um, you can pledge uh, $40 and you'll get a commemorative pledge. It's, it's considered a commemorative pledge uh, because we've been around for 40 years and uh, you will get a bunch of goodies, uh, including CD and uh, T-shirt, I believe. And you can call 824, uh, sorry, 949-824-5824 and talk to the nice person who will answer the phone. Or you can go online and click on the banner that says KUCI Pledge Drive, Fund Drive, and um, do your thing online. 
This is Dan Zhang. We've been listening to an interview with、uh, Barack Goodman, who's the director, writer, and producer of Me Lai, a film that explores this dark side of American history,、uh, when American troops killed 507 civilians for no reason、um, in 1968,、uh, during the height of the Vietnam War. So this is subversity here. Where we are able to bring you interviews like this.、Uh, next two weeks, we'll be covering the Newport Beach Film Festival, which starts on Thursday, and the Asian Pacific、um, Film Festival in LA, which starts the following Thursday. So we'll continue this trend of interviewing directors and people involved with films for the next two weeks here on Subversity.、Um, so stay tuned. Um, for the next、uh, few、uh, shows, at least,、uh, where we'll be bringing you um, um, visual、uh, depictions or talk about visual depictions from around the world, especially from Asia. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity.